Hello, listeners, and welcome to the latest Arcanetat podcast. On today's show, I'm joined with Ed Watberg, the Atari legend. He's probably best known for inventing the world's first FPS game in Battlezone. He then worked closely with the US Army to work on a very secretive project, and he shares some great stories linking him to the Polybius rumours. He also talks about his time at Freedio and loads more stories in between. So, guys, sit back and enjoy a great chat with a true retro gaming legend. Welcome to Arcade Attack. <laughs> A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Sonic Boom! Phoenix Bad I've got another amazing guest on today's Arcade Attack show. I've got a true Atari legend. Someone who has been, um, well, he's... He's got the the title, maybe creating the first ever FPS game in Battlezone. We can talk about that later, but I've got Edward Rotberg here, a real legend. So thank you, Ed, for your time today. Um, no problem. Thank you. Um, I've got loads of, loads of questions about your career and what you've been up to. And um, uh, and firstly, you know, appreciate you coming on today. Another huge Atari legend. I'd love to know first, Ed, though, is um, how did you get the opportunity to first into the video game industry was it something you're always interested in? did you make games before you got your, your big break or how, how did that come about um i was actually working at the time in chicago um when i first started down this path for a company called gd serial pharmaceuticals um you uh, might know them they're the ones that came up with the, the uh uh aspartame um uh, uh, um Sweetener, that's uh, non-sugar. Hold on right. a second. My wife just sent the dog up here, and, and he was looking to get out, so I may have to jump up at any minute. Can <laughs> we start again, or are you all right? No, 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 we're good. Um, so I was I was working there, and I was in the lab, working in the lab section, interfacing uh, lab equipment to microcomputers for real-time data collection. Um, and... Um, and so uh, a friend of mine uh, who was working in another department there, um, a gal that I used to uh, go out with, uh, brought me um, a copy of uh, uh, Info World magazine. This was an industry, uh, you know, programming rag back then and said, this looks like your perfect job, Ed, because I've always been a big gamer. I've been programming the Xerox 7 there uh, at Serial. Um, to uh, play uh, Mastermind and, you know, a few other games and things like that. And so uh, I said, well, let's, yeah, let's let's check this out. So I sent a resume in. And the next thing I know, I got a call from a gentleman named Steve Calfee, who was uh, the manager of the software group uh, in the arcade group at Atari at that point. And um, we had a, a nice phone interview, and then he flew out to Chicago and, uh, that was an interesting interview in and of itself. Uh, I guess, um, and no surprise, I was not the only person in the Chicago area that he was interviewing for the job. Uh, so he was holding interviews at his hotel room at the airport, O'Hare Airport, which is yeah, well outside the city, uh, shall we say. And I, I remember going to that interview uh, and, you know, you interview, you, you interview for a job back in those days, and you wore a suit and tie. Mm. I, you know, get his hotel room, you know, get up into his room, 
knock on the door. Give me just a second to let the dog out of the room. <laughs> no problem. Let the dog out. Please. Come on, come on, come on. Um, so uh, I'm trying to, this room here is uh, somewhat free of smoke. So uh, I'm keeping the door closed. Um, anyhow, I, I want, he answers the door and he's wearing, you know, like a, a golf shirt and shorts. And I call, first thing I said to him, and I think this is why I got the job, was I said, oh, thank God. And I took my tie off and my jacket off and threw it on the bed. And then we had a nice, a nice chat for an hour. Nice. Nice. Um, well, I, I know it's not related to all, but what's your dog's name out of interest? I know our viewers are probably interested. It's uh, Bogart, but we call him Bogey. All right, okay. <laughs> and I, I don't, and you said about smoke. You're, you're currently based in, is it California? And unfortunately, you've got some yeah. wildfires, yeah, we, haven't you? We live in the, uh, the old gold mining uh, area of California. We're not in the Bay Area anymore. We moved out of the Bay Area about 21 years ago. And moved up here to get away from you know all the craziness and mayhem down there, living in a very small town that we adore. Um, but we, anybody who thinks uh, who had lived has lived up here for that long knows that climate change is real, and we have mm. idiots in Congress. But that's no news, I'm sure. Well, yeah, yeah, because I can see there's no smoke in the room. I don't want anyone thinking your house is on fire or anything. <laughs> no, yeah. no, 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 you wouldn't even see the smoke, but it's you. You can't miss the smell. <laughs> right, fair enough. Um, all right, back to Atari then. I, I'm I love Atari. I have to say I uh, I'm a massive Atari Jaguar fan. That's how my main love for the, the company, believe it or not. But you know, iconic company. How would you describe working at Atari during the 80s? Did you work closely with Nolan Bushnell, for example? Did you make some really good friends? And how would you describe the atmosphere at one of the most iconic video game companies all of all time? Um, that's that's a really good question, uh, and it's a really easy answer. It was the finest group of, of engineers and creative people that I've ever worked with uh, oh. in, one, in one singular group. I mean, I've worked with very special people over the years at different times, um, but for having a group of talented people all in one place, all working together, um, yes, we all became close friends. We not only worked together, we played together. You know, if uh, someone was, uh, you know, uh, moving, then everybody, you know, from the office chipped in and went over and helped them move. You know, so, um, you know, uh, one guy, Rich Moore, the, the kind of crazy stuff we did. One guy, Rich Moore, was getting married. And uh, we all decided that they're going to, you know, get him what you want. He's going to return it, you know, and get what he wants anyhow. And we, we said, well, maybe we should all buy him the exact same thing. So we all went to uh, Macy's, which is a big department store here, and we all bought him the exact same toaster. So we got like 25 of this toaster. And they had, they had to take back to Macy's 25 toasters to return them to get something <laughs> You know, it's just a way of giving a gift certificate, but we, we couldn't just give them gift certificates, I guess. And that is great. <laughs> that is great. And uh, are you still friends? I, I think it's, you showed up. Obviously, people can't see this, but that you showed a really good pitch on Twitter of, of you and some ex-colleagues at Atari. And I, it's the reason I got in contact with you, actually, thinking, wow, you know, what a legend. And um, are you still in contact with any of these ex-colleagues today, then? Um, a surprising number of them. Um, mm. uh for example, in that picture, both Owen and Ed Log uh, and I, and I'm trying to remember who all else was in that picture, are in, uh, Owen and Ed Log and I are in regular contact. 
Um, uh, Wendy, uh, I speak to very rarely. Al, I speak to him a bit more often. Um, and my same with Mike Alba. Um, you know, we stay in touch, but not close touch with them. But the other guys, yeah, we're like, in fact, Ed offered to put my wife and I and our dog up at his place in San Jose if we get evacuate from here again this year. Wow. Um, and I run a, um, a golf tournament. I've been running it for, I don't know, over 25 years. Um, and it, it's basically just a fun thing for, for guys. It started out for guys in the games business. Oh, nice. So we've been doing it for 25 years. So a lot of these same guys, I mean, they're, they're really uh, close friends. We go to spring training for baseball, some of us together. And yeah, this has been, like I said, it was a very, very special group and we stay in touch. No, good stuff. Um, I've got to ask, that was Battlezone the first game you worked on at Atari? Was there a game before Battlezone? There was a game before Bell. Battlezone was my second game. Right. What, what was really, What was the first game, Ed, if you don't mind me asking? When I, when I came to work at Atari, the game that was really hot in the arcades from Atari was a game that Ed Log did. The dog wants in again. I'm going to leave the door open, but it'll let some smoke in here. You won't <laughs> see it. Hold on. Crazy dog. Um <laughs> Uh, was a game I did um, called uh, well the the game that was hot was a game called football that Ed Log did mm. um, American football was on a big tabletop with two big roll you know track balls mm-hmm. not the old little not the little ones but the old big ones and they wanted to repurpose that cabinet and do a baseball game so um, you know I was just learning all this stuff and everything like that and it took about three months and we came out with a baseball game so it. It did just okay. Yeah, Not yeah, yeah, yeah. Nearly as well as the football game. Yeah, you're finding your feet still and, and getting. And it, was, it needed to be done. On, unfortunately, the, the arcade business has this thing called a production line. And if they can't keep it fed with product, then they're paying a lot of people to sit on their butts. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, um, the, the, the deadlines become really important. And they needed this one quick, so you know that that's just the nature of the business as well. Mm-mm-mm. No, that's fair enough. Um, obviously, Battlezone is probably one of your most well-known games that you worked on. Really iconic title. How did it come about? Was it your idea, Battlezone? It's a very interesting idea. It's 3D. Uh, people that don't know, you know, it's 3D kind of FPS shooter, ahead of its time, personally, I think. But how would you? How did it come about for you? Well, uh, that, that's uh, a good question, and I would love to take credit for the concept for Battlezone, but I can't. Right. Um, it was actually, it came out of one of the company w- would hold these brainstorming sessions where they would take, they would solicit ideas from everybody uh, in the department. Um, you know, you can you know, write up an idea. It can be like a paragraph. You can go you know, get some artwork if you can find someone to do drawing or you were talented enough yourself to add, you know, for screen representations of what you were thinking and things like that. And then they would take a a select number of, you know, the more senior staff and stuff and go off to a, an offsite meeting and go through all the ideas, vote on them, whittle it down and come back with a book of approved game ideas. Mm-hmm. And um, that was going on just as I was finishing up Battles on the, the offsite for that, uh, not Battles on Baseball, as I was finishing yeah, Baseball, yeah. Um, the offsite for that. So when they came back and I was ready for a new game, 
I was one of the first uh, people to get a crack at that brainstorming sessions things. And there was a first person 3D, uh, a, you know, tank game. And Atari had done a bunch of tank games that were really mm. successful. You know, they did the, the original tank game and then Tank 8, which was this giant tabletop thing where you could have up to eight people driving tanks around and shooting them. And um, we had also just come up with uh, Howard Delman had developed the uh, the uh, vector display. Um, right, and so right, the, the right. idea of being able to do 3D, which at that time was like pipe dream, yeah. you know, um, there had been talk about coming up with, you know, a, a special process, creating a special processor from components to do nothing but 3D math. Um, so that was the task set before. So there were a lot of new things that had to go on for that game to, you know, even be possible to think about. Um, so that's where the, the idea came from. I mean, just the 3D element of it, the, the FPS element, it was a groundbreaking game. Did you know at the time that it was something quite special or for you is it just another project or was it always like wow this could be pretty big it was never just another project mm. and um you know we're still pretty young back then and we yeah. i don't know that we're thinking about you know hey this is going to be big you know and <laughs> you know and we're going to you know, get rich off of this or anything like that it was like this looks like it's going to be a blast to work on. This is something I want to do. I studied, you know, 3D graphics as it was at that time in college. And I was very fortunate enough to study with one of the true, you know, legends in, in image synthesis, uh, Jim Blinn, who was uh, a graduate student at the University of Michigan when I was there. Um, so, uh, you know, I got I got my initial dose of 3D graphics from as well as doing vector graphics from him, in fact. So yeah. uh, it was like, you know, this would be a really fun thing to work on. You know, I, I want to do this. So that's yeah. basically what it came down to. Um, I, it wasn't quite, I didn't get to pick it out. I, let me rephrase it. The project leader for that game was a gentleman named Morganoff. Mm -hmm. um, and he was, you know, so as a project leader, he got to pick the game. He wanted to do that game, and he asked around, and I was like, yeah, I want to work on that. So I did, I wasn't the one who went to the book and said, let's do this game. Mm -hmm. It was Morgan Hoff once he found someone who was excited, a programmer who was excited as he was to do the game. But you, you programmed it from start to finish. Is that right, Ed? You, you were sure? Uh, there were two parts I didn't program. Um, I did not do the math box. That was done by Mike Alba, who was in that picture. Um, he did that on a custom, a custom-built uh, processor made out of 2901 bit slice processors. Right. Um, um, so he was basically doing the matrix transform math on that. Um, and uh, the other programmer who did a, a wee portion of it was Owen Rubin, who was also in that picture I posted. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough. And Owen and I shared a lab during the development of, of uh, Battlezone. And um, at one point, you know, I had a lot of that stuff in and working in the volcano was in there along with all the other window dressing uh, around there. And every morning Owen would come in and say, well, not morning, Owen was more of a vampire. He would come in every day around noon or so. Um, he'd come in and say, did you get that volcano active yet? And, you know, at first it was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And then after about the the second month on uh, of him saying that, I finally said, if you want that volcano active, you can write the code for it. So, you know, two days later, I've got this listing on my desk. And so he wrote he wrote the code to make the volcano active. Oh, fair enough. But but Ed, you did, you know, you did loads of the majority of it. What what was the development like on it? Was it easy to produce? Was it really quite with this new sort of 3D technology? Was it quite troublesome? Was it a, how long did it take to make, for example? Oh boy, I that was closer to a year, and I honestly don't remember the duration. Um, there were a lot of things involved. This was, you know, a, a new this vector display uh, was a new. Um, a new thing, and and the way you you programmed it, you kind of dynamically programmed it. So you, the game ran basically on a 6502 processor, and you used that to create the instruction set for one frame of video, and you divided and the the, the vector generator was like a state machine, so it was executing, you know, vector generator instructions. Mm -hmm. So you would divide the memory. I'm getting technical here. You would divide the memory of the instruction space of the vector generator in half with a jump statement at the top as to which half to do. You would create the frame for the vector generator to run uh, for one full frame, and then you would switch the buffer to point to that section while you went and wrote the next frame's worth of data in the other half of the buffer. And so that's how you affected uh, the whole thing. Um, of course, a lot of the debugging you would end up doing would be in the vector generator, which had really no tools for it. So one of the tools I had to write as part of that was a vector generator disassembler. So you could look at what you had written. So there, it was, there were a lot of things involved in writing that. I had to write um, a basically, you know, uh, now, if you go out and you want to write a 3D game, you would get a 3D engine like mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the Unreal Engine or Unity, mm -hmm. and you know it has all the basis for doing that. It it define you know has a definition for an object, and you can go to. I had to do what the equivalent of all that was from, but it was much simpler. It wasn't as involved. It didn't do all yeah, that. Yeah. Throw a bunch of lines. I'm not talking you know, but I had to create all that from scratch. There was nothing. A lot of programming video games or anything else is copying code from other things that people have done that worked. But for that game, there there wasn't anything to copy from. So we were yeah, doing yeah. a lot of this from scratch. I was going to ask, do you, I think it is the first FPS, but do you, do you know for a fact if it is? It sounds like there was nothing to base it on. So are you happy with it? Do you agree with that statement? In some ways, yes. Um, there was a game, and I will never, uh, you know, Forget this because I was working on this. You know, we're gonna have the first three D game, three D game come out, and Cinematronics also had a vector display. Right. And shortly before Battlezone came out, the incomparable and sadly departed Tim Skelly uh, from at that time at Cinematronic released a game called Tail Gunner. And Tail Gunner was three D. You couldn't control. You were on a rail, so you were the tail gunner. You just had things show up. So, you know, you could point the gun and shoot at things, but you couldn't move around in this world. So it was kind of halfway there. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Uh, if you remember Tail Gunner, which, boy, Tim was, I don't know, he might have been one of the most creative people I knew in that industry. And if you look at the breadth of things he's he did over his years, both in video games and, you know, he 
He had uh, comic chat was just a groundbreaking thing that was ahead of its time. Um, I was fortunate enough to work with Tim later on with Seamus Blackley and Innovative Leisure, um, a true gentleman in addition to being a genius. Oh, fair oh, that's very, very gracious of you. But yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I've got to ask actually, because obviously Battlezone was a huge success, uh, yeah, amazing success for Atari, but it also got the US Army talking. <laughs> I, I need to know, what. obviously I live in the UK, I don't know too much about the story, but I've done a little bit of, it's just absolutely incredible. How did the US Army get involved with you, you and, and Battlezone, Ed, if you don't want me asking? There were a group of, uh, well, it's not a subject I particularly am fond of, but, um, right. you know, for the record here, um, there were a group of retired generals that were, that wanted to propose using video game technology to train soldiers as a concept. And of course, you know, Battlezone had just come out and they got together with a gentleman at Atari, um, a gentleman named Rick Moncrief, who is a friend, and they proposed him doing a game that could be used to train, uh, and I don't know how they came up with this particular idea, the gunner station uh, for an a new infantry fighting vehicle that uh, one of our, you know, uh, uh, military industrial complex companies had uh, created called the Infantry Fighting Vehicle. Um, the Bradley fighting vehicle, um, and they wanted to create this thing called the Bradley Trainer based around the capabilities of, uh, you know, what Battlezone had done. Right. Um, so they proposed this to Rick. Um, there was going to be a meeting of the actual uh, U.S. military training, uh, it's called TRADOC, I think, um, and they wanted to have a prototype to show them in about three months. Right. So, so um, you know, Rick proposed this to Atari, and Atari said, hey, yeah, let's do this. And I said, oh, right. no, this is a bad idea yeah. um, for a lot of reasons. Three months is is just too short to do the kind of things they were talking about. Uh, I had previously worked at a company that contracted to the military Texas Instruments, um, and, um, you know, um, it was – I don't think it had expired by then, but I had a secret clearance. Um, and uh, I saw the kinds of things that when you do, when you contract to the military, all of a sudden there are new rules for your company all up and down the board if you're working right. with the U.S. government. So I didn't want to see Atari go through that. I didn't, you know, we had, I loved where I was working. Um, so I mean, you know, they really, there was no one else who could do this in the time frame that they were talking about. So I struck a deal that said that if I do this prototype, I can wash my hands of any future military projects. I'm basically a pacifist. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a gung ho, you know, military sure. guy. Um, yeah. So uh, through, for three months of my life, I basically lived at Atari. I would I would get up in the morning, uh, get to work. I'd work typically anywhere from you know 14 to 18 hour days. I would go home, uh, I would uh, kiss my wife goodnight and go to sleep and wake up and start all over again. There were no weekends. Um, and everybody knew this was going to be a crash and burn thing. I was done for, you know, a, a good, you know, two weeks at least after this thing went out the door. Yeah. And 
you know, managed to get it done by deadline. Um, and it was not uh, a fond memory of my life experience. Yeah, I, I don't mean to bring up bad... I mean, sorry, Ed, I don't think they obviously... It's not, it's, it, at this point, you know, I'm just saying, it's it's not something I look back with fondness on. It, it, it doesn't hurt. It's okay. <laughs> would you would you class it as... It's not a game, though, is it? Then? It's a simul, no, simulator, maybe. Or... We awarded points. You know, they wanted the, the play. They wanted the players to, you know, have competition, be able to say, you know, hey, I'm the best one here. So right. the other guys would work harder and train. So we did award points and make it into sort of a game. But the you know the game was basically quickly identified friendly from foe because we had friendly vehicles out roaming the, the play field too, uh, and then take down the foe as quickly as possible because that's what they wanted to do. Familiarize yourself with the controls, blah 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 blah. You know, and that's that's what the purpose of the uh, the game they wanted to eventually produce was. This was just a prototype. So the the game was very primitive. You know, you kill a bad guy, you get a certain number of points depending on, you know, whether it was a helicopter or a jeep or a tank or whatever. Um, you blow up a good guy, you lose a bunch of points, you know. Um, so it wasn't much of a game. Was it ever released to the public or is it very... No. To my knowledge, there were only two prototypes ever made. I bet they're worth a pretty penny. <laughs> um, I... Don't know. Um, I, don't, I think yeah. Scott Evans has one. I'm not positive. Uh, and I think he rescued it out of a dumpster. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like this was a revered piece of history when we finished with it. Oh. When they decided not to go through, Atari decided not to go through with, you know, following through on this, it was an oddity. You know, no, you know it was like another prototype that uh, the game didn't, didn't pan out. So... It's, bizarre. it's just bizarre. I mean, it, it sounds like it took a toll on you a little bit. And Yeah, at the time, you, we yeah. weren't thinking about this, that, you know, these boxes are pieces of history. We just didn't think of it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a question here, but I'm sort of jumping a bit ahead, Ed, but if I can ask now from John Painter from, from Twitter, uh, the, the Bradley Trainer, that's what it's called, the Bradley Trainer, Um I mean, this is quite a tough question, but you don't have to answer this. But he says, how does Ed feel now in the 21st century where we have conditioned our young to be ready for war in the comfort of their own bedrooms and even given them Call of Duty style uh, HUD for use in combat? So do you have an opinion about that sort of thing or, or is that? You know, I, it's something I don't give a lot of thought to, to be honest with you. It's not something that makes me proud to have been on the forefront of, you know, uh, of creating entertainment that trains people for war because I'm yeah. I'm a pacifist. No, yeah. um, and so it's a little bit disquieting. Uh, on the other hand, it was going to go this way one way or the other. Um, so, uh, you know. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to condemn it. I'm not going to praise it. Um, I just... You know, it is what it is. No, I appreciate your answer. I, you know, and I guess it sounds like a movie script part of this. And um, if I'm being honest, because there were some movies at the time, but I think it was, uh, what's it called? The Flight of the Navigator. Uh, Nav they're training kids to play arcades and the army. So yeah, I don't know if you saw that. There's a um, number of movies like that. There's uh, um, 
uh, Ernie Klein uh, wrote uh, uh, Armada. Um, yes, yes, yes. And that's a very good book, to be Ernie, fair. I don't know if you, yeah. Oh, yeah, Ernie is, is he's a wonderful guy. Ready player. Uh, have, you met, have you met, met Ernie? Yeah? Okay. Um, uh, only over the internet. You know, we've uh, gone back and forth quite a bit. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his. That's for yeah. sure. Ready Player One is, and Ready Player Two as well. I don't know if you've read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got, I've got signed. You see behind me a, a large bookcase. Uh, yeah. I've been collecting uh, uh, science fiction uh, and fantasy books for years and years, and I've got you know all three of his uh, uh, as signed first editions, and uh, nice. a couple of them came directly from Ernie. So I'm Bless very him. proud of those books. <laughs> were, you, were you mentioned in any of those books? I know they, he mentioned a few Atari Legends. I don't know if you, your name cropped up in any of them at all. Or I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know if my name did, but Battlezone certainly did. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that came up today. <laughs> um, I mean, some I mean, it's my last question, is Ed, but there's some people kind of link the work for the US Army to Polybius, that crazy arcade game, that that myth. It doesn't exist, obviously, but it's an un unbelievable urban legend. I mean, do you, have you heard those kind of links before? Is that just ridiculous in your eyes? I've heard all of the legends I have <laughs> denied involvement for years and years and then, you know guys like mike will just like oh sure ed you know I, yeah i i'm the devious sort of guy that's going to try to reprogram someone's brain to have you know an, a nervous breakdown i'm not that smart yeah, <laughs> yeah i mean so it's a fascinating myth but it, um, that's all it is really isn't it just the, just the well, my son my son um, who is now 40 years old, tells me that I shouldn't do anything to, to hurt my uh, evil genius street cred, as he puts it. <laughs> yeah, that seems pretty, pretty right in a way, in a way. Um, you, you did Battlezone, you worked on this Bradley trailer. Did you, is it true you left Atari soon after this, Ed, and you, you, you started your own company and then came back again? Are you happy to sort of fill in the dots a little bit to our listeners? Yeah. Um, the... Uh, at the, at shortly, you know, before we left, I wouldn't say shortly, but you know, maybe about a year or so before before I left Atari with two other guys, Howard Delman, the you know inventor of our vector generator, and a gentleman named Roger Hector, um, uh, Activision, the guys who created Activision, left Atari and went off. Um, and a lot of it, this, to be honest, had to do. This was before. Um, the developers, the, the the designers and programmers and artists uh, that created these games got a lot of money for successful games. The company got that money, and we got bonuses. Right. Um, we had no say in how big those bonuses were and things like that. We got to divvy those bonuses up amongst our team, and we had a say in that, but not how much the team got. And it really wasn't all that much. And so we saw these guys from Activision doing the home stuff. This was, you know, on 2600, go off and get very wealthy. Um, and, you know, the three of us said, you know, why shouldn't we do the same thing in the arcade business end of things? Um, you know, we kind of knew what kind of money was going around. And we yeah. weren't seeing all that much of it. Yeah. So that was, that was the reason behind it. It was, you know, and I was, you know, young. Uh, you know, invulnerable. We all are at that age. So we went off and we formed a company uh, that at the time was called Vidya. 
Right. Uh, we hired a few others of our friends who either had already left or were looking to leave. And we started creating games, uh, selling ourselves back to the industry. Um, yeah. We did We did a couple of, uh, of arcade games. Uh, well, one that really wasn't all that good. Um, and then we were approached... Um, we were approached by Nolan Bushnell. <laughs> he had left the company a few years before, but he was Atari was running out. And so he wanted to get back into uh, the video game business. He was at that time doing a, a business called Chuck E. Cheese Pizza yep. Time. Yeah, I've heard of it. But he wanted to get back into video games. And so he had... He had an engineering group that was in, you know, developing all the animatronics and stuff like that, but they were not video people at all. Mm. So he said, hey, you guys, I, you know, we have known Nolan for years, of course, working at Atari. Um, and he said, how would you guys like to be a part of, you know, you know go buy your company? And here we thought, oh, hey, we're going to get bought out. We're going to get rich quick. Of course, we got bought out with stock primarily from Pizza Time uh theater and you know we were all excited you know the stock was going to go up and blah, yeah. blah 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 and well before we could get our first game even out the door um pizza time theater kind of crumbled uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> and all that stock was worth nothing so now we were working for a company that was going bankrupt and our division was then sold to bally um oh, from right. pizza time theater to bally and uh, it was there that we uh, we created the. Uh, it was uh, it had, after we had been bought. Nolan renamed our the company to Sente, which is the move after Atari in the game of Go. For those not familiar, oh, is it? He's game oh, okay. of Go. Yeah. So it was like um, you know uh, checkmate to the check of Atari. Very clever. Um, the game. Uh, and so uh, we created the the interchangeable cartridge game. Uh, arcade game, uh, and we started working on those games for Belly, Belly Sente. It was right, called. right. Um, so that, that's how that's how that whole thing went. <laughs> that's quite an interesting. Wow, that's a crazy few years. A couple of years was now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I interviewed Rob Phillip uh, quite recently. He worked at Atari, obviously, and he said for his year, you know, for his bonus, he got a turkey, and that was kind of the thing that said, "Well, I don't want to be at Atari anymore." That you know, obviously. At the time, I don't think they gave uh, credits to people in the games. I don't know about the, the arcades, but you talk about the Atari 2600 games. And he, he went on to make his own sort of company or went off. I mean, yeah, we did, allowed, uh, they kept they kept our names completely. They were trying to hide us. Um, at one point, they allowed a writer, Michael Treitman, from the Smithsonian Magazine to come interview us during the huh. big arcade boom and things like that. And he did an article, but he had to you know, sign papers up and down the wazoo that our names would be removed or, you know, substituted or whatever. Um, and so, you know, the article came out and there's pictures and you can still find them on the web. Um, but, you know, all our names were removed. We certainly couldn't put them in the game. They did allow us to seed the high score table when you first power up the game. There's a bunch of initials and in like, a, you know, base high score table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we could have our initials in there, but that's it. Right. Um, so yeah, we got no credits, we got no bonuses. <laughs> it was pretty sad. So 
Uh, I do, there was a change that happened in, certainly in the Koinak group, in their bonus policy after uh, Howie and Roger and I left. Um, so that did instigate a, uh, what I like to think of as a, a fairer, uh, if not completely fair, because I don't know all the details, uh, bonus plan than what it had been when I was there. Right. I mean, that's, you, you see the always. <laughs> When I was there the first time, because I did go back. You, you went back, didn't you? And um, again, I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but is it Blasteroids? That was another big game of yours. That was, that was the first game I did when I went back. What, what was that like? Because Blasteroids, uh, Space Shooter, uh, what was your influence like? Was that your idea as well? Well, I, you know, I got back and I was like, all right, I'm going to get ready. I'm going to work on my first game. And I was you know, working on a bunch of different ideas. And I went to uh, Dan Van Eldren, who was at that time the uh, the head of the uh, engineering group. And I said, I have this great idea. And he said, sit down, Ed. We need a sequel to, to Asteroids. Right. <laughs> and so then I crumpled up the paper I had been working on. It, and I said, all right, well, let me see what I can, you know, let me, let me propose some ideas that would work with that. And so I took some of the ideas from the game, uh, primarily, uh, I had like a rock, paper, scissors kind of element to the game that I added, which was the three different ships. Um, and then, you know, a co-op mode where you could combine two of the ships if you did it right. Um, uh, and so that's how the idea for Blasteroids came about. What was the idea of the game crumpled up in that piece of paper, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I honestly don't remember that a long time ago, but... <laughs> The, the essential part that came out of that, I do remember lifting the rock, paper, scissors uh, portion of the game that I had been working on out and 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 uh, patching uh -huh. it into uh, an, uh, an asteroids theme. And this was an arcade game still, is that right? Yeah, yeah that's that's all I ever did for Atari. Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask, did you ever, yeah, you never I worked on any parts. I did work on some stuff for the Atari home computer. Right, um, okay. I did work on uh, uh, in-store demos and a music synthesizer for the uh, for the home computer. So yeah. Um, I was going to ask actually because um, just going back to my interview with Rob Phillip, he was working on like Atari Twenty Six Hundred games, and he he was saying it was always like, well, if you worked on the carts, you got arcade. Basically, the people that made the arcades, they, they had the power, they came up with the ideas, and then you had to sort of make that into. The carts. Do you, would you agree with that, or would you ever like to make your own sort of, you know, Atari cartridge games? Or um, I would agree with that to a large part. I mean, um, it, they weren't looking just us; they were licensing other arcade games to do on the cartridges. That was a much bigger beast to feed, but um, of course, much less capable hardware to work on. So, um, you know. Uh, yeah, they, they went and took a lot of the games that were successful in the arcade that we had done yeah, and yeah. they ported them, you know, uh, because you already had your built-in marketing. Kids would go to the arcade and, you know, play Battlezone. They'd want to come home and play Battlezone, even though it could never be the same experience on the 2600. So, yeah. Yeah, no, fair, that's fair enough, yeah. I've got to ask about Rampart. I mean, I, it's one of my favorite games. I, have to, I love it. Um I grew up playing that game on the Master System and, and the Amiga. I think it was an Amiga as well. Just so great. I just love the originality of it. It seemed quite different. I love the 
build elements, the strategy. It's like a puzzle game. What was your role on that game? Because I'd love to hear about this. I can't take any credit. All right. It's very interesting. Uh, John Solowitz and Dave Ralston were the two guys behind right. Rampart. Um, and they're both very good friends. Like with, with, you know, They come to the golf tournament every year. Uh, John and I go to, and sometimes Dave, you know, our families go to spring training together every year. Um, so, and, you know, we do, we stay in touch. We try to do things together. But I was over at John's house one night, and he pulls out this board game called Castles. Right. Uh, and, you know, he's, he sits down, and he and Dave start – he says, I think there's an arcade game in here. And he and Dave start working, and, you know, I make a comment here and there. And for some reason, this happens a lot in video games. You know, if you contribute anything, you know, they'll – They'll throw your name on it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. you know, contributed playing the game. <laughs> I contributed maybe a little bit, although I honestly cannot recall. It was just um, looking back on it, an honor at the time. It was a blast to be sitting around Dave and and John as they came up with the idea for for Rampart. Um, uh, and I remember John going, "It's got to be Rampart, not Ramparts." You know, that, yeah. that, <laughs> it's a rampart. There aren't ramparts. <laughs> you, you like the game, I take it. You're a fan of it. Oh, God, yeah. It's so yeah. fun. It's, it is so fun. Okay, that's it. It's so interesting hearing about how you saw the game just developed. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, you got to remember, for all the arcade games, and this actually was encouraged on my second tour through Atari, there were formal... Walkabout Fridays, where you were, you know, encouraged to walk about and play all of the prototype, all the games that people, other people were working about. And there was a, you know, sheet there. You could give feedback, you know, I love this and I hated this. And, you know, this is unfair. And uh, for the games you were working on, it was quite often wonderful to look at the, you know, this is unfair. And, you know, all right, all right. <laughs> can you can you remember any games that you thought, wow, this is amazing and you you before it was released, or any games you thought, oh, I'm not so sure, it actually maybe became a really big seller? Or? Well, I became just maybe the biggest fan ever of Cyberball. Um, that, that was, uh, you know, an American football game with robots, if you will. And yeah. it was set up, uh, you know, uh, the original version was uh, a up to four-player cabinet with two teams, with two monitors sitting like at, at um, well, from your direction, it would be like this. A monitor in each direction, so you could kind of glance over at your your friends while you were playing, but not see their screen. So you each had privacy uh, of screen, but and you were competing against each other. So while you were calling the offensive plays, they were calling the defensive plays. So you didn't want to see what plays they were calling, and so that's why they were angled so that you couldn't see the screens. That's clever. <laughs> and a mirror in the middle, so you could like while you're doing, you could glance up and see the eyes of the other guy too. <laughs> That's great. Little things like that, Ed, I'm sure you agree, just make the difference. Oh, yeah. Little, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, a, a funny story uh, regarding that. We're never the best players of the games we write. Right. We may think we are. You know, we may get really good in the lab and, you know, no one's going to come challenge us because we're the best. And John Solowitz and I got pretty good as a team, um, you know, playing cyberball. And we decided to go into an arcade one night and, you know, school the yeah. – School the arcade players in there, and it's it was not a good idea. 
I, I actually that reminds me. I remember asking John Tobias, you know, obviously Mortal Kombat legend, um, whether he likes to sort of just go into arcades and watch people play his games and hear what they had to say. And did you ever do that with Battlezone and other games you worked on? Um, I know you played yes, a few. But... Yes, you do. And some of the things they said, you you know, made your heart swell. Some of the things they would say, especially right after the game was released or while it was on field test, because we would put games out, you know, in the arcades um, before they were fully finished to oh, see yeah. if they on the right track. What do they like? What do they don't like? So we actually had to go do, the, you know, watch people play our games as part of uh, you know the whole thing. We, you know, we wouldn't say, hey, I mean, I'm the designer. We would just sit back and, you know, uh, observe yeah. candidly. No, yeah, it must be really interesting. Um, Ed, I think before you left Atari, you worked on Stilled Talons. Is that one of your last games that you worked on? Um, n- not one of my last games, but yeah. Well, at, at Atari. I it was one of my last games, but it was one of the games I worked on on my second stint at Atari. And the best part about that was working with Ed Log. I mean, yeah, yeah, I yeah. spoke with him as... as Maybe one of the two, all two or three all-time great, uh, greatest uh, arcade game designers of all time, uh-huh. and he is just an amazing, an amazing person. Uh, love Ed Log; he's just the best. He's, yeah, we've yeah, you know, legend, of course. Um, why did you why did you leave Atari again? If you don't mind me asking, was there another reason, or did you have another offer? To <laughs> The second time, it wasn't, you know, because they weren't paying me enough or anything like that. Um, yeah. It was a little bit, it, it actually involved corporate politics. Right. Um, there was uh, one gentleman who was, I love your cat's tail. I know, sorry. Um, no, <laughs> sorry. Um, there was um, one gentleman who was in the, you know, uh, design, you know, arcade group, and I'm not going to mention any names. But when they were doing reorganizations, they decided to put him into management. Right. And a number of us felt um, at the time that this was a bad idea because, you know, his we felt like, you know, for the other project leaders, well, if his project needed resources and he was on the committee that would assign those resources, that wasn't uh, an entirely lacking conflict of interest. Um, and they went, no, no, this is never going to happen, never going to happen, whatever. And at the time, there was a project um, being, you know, I guess I guess I was finishing up on Steel Talons, and there was a project that was just being spun up as like a far-flung, you know, this may pan into something in the future. Um, and it was it was like, you know, a virtual place because um, the Internet was becoming something that, you know, maybe we can leverage for video games at this point. And maybe we can get a, a place where players could come together and walk into different rooms together virtually to play a game together in that room kind of thing. You know, far-flung ideas back then. And and I was scheduled to go work on that with a guy named Russ, Russ, Rusty Daw. Um, and um, I got pulled off of working on going to work on that project to work mm-hmm. on this gentleman who was now both a project leader and part of management uh, on his right. game. And, well, it would have been one thing to work on his game, actually doing coding or design or uh, a game, but he ended up using me as basically his data entry clerk. And he would, you know, I wrote one section of the game that did the parallax floor of a game called Guardians of the Hood. 
um, so that it would look like it was moving properly. And um, so I wrote that and he goes, well, you know, we're not done with the game. I got to enter all these individual moves for the player. So why don't you be my data? And, you know, basically I was his data entry clerk and he sat over my shoulder and told me what to type in. Um, at that point, I said, you know, I, you can't pay me enough money to do this crap. And yeah. so I had a friend who had gone off. Uh, Owen Rubin had already left the company. I was working at Apple. Yeah. He, he said, come to work for me. So I went to work. I didn't work for him, but I went to work at Apple for a few years. So Did um, you um, – I, I saw my question, but did you work when Steve Jobs was at Apple, or was it the in-between period, or do you remember, or – I think Steve was still with the company at that time, or he was leaving the company at right. that time. Yeah, I was working on, on Macintosh computers, uh, basically some uh, – well, I did a few different things there, so, yeah. Yeah, I, just back to what you were saying before, and I, you don't have to say names, but it does sound a little bit – you know, Ed, come on, you built up a huge reputation of, of amazing games, and all of a sudden, data entry. That, that's not really – well, That's not really right? no, it was never called that. It was, hey, I have this resource. This resource is really good with a keyboard and terminal because that's what it was at that point. We were typing things into a, a VAX 11780, I believe, um, through a, a VT100 terminal. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was very good at that, but just because I did it all the time, not because – and it was it was – yeah, I mean – I guess he didn't realize how demeaning it was, um, or he didn't care, uh, <laughs> one or the other. But I did. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of Atari now? Because it's, it's Atari is still around, but it's a a bit of a shell of a company at the moment. I know they've got the new console coming out, but they've been some ups and downs. Do you feel a bit sad that the Atari you grew up with is not really there anymore? Yeah, it's funny, you know. Um, for a few years there, and I guess it's faded now, but you'd see people, you know, kids basically walking around with Atari shirts yeah. with the Atari logo, and they had no idea. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they didn't even realize what it represented, you know, to certainly to someone who lived through that experience. Um, uh, so um, in a way, it's sad. Uh, it's, it's business. Yeah. It's, it's what happens. Yeah. Uh, IP becomes uh, a thing in and of itself, you know, uh, intellectual property, the use of a name. Um, in some ways, you know, I've seen that on a more personal level with the, all the variations of battle zones that have come out yes. since then, yes. leveraging on the title of the game. But in many cases, these were excellent games. So I wasn't upset in the least about it because they were doing stuff I wish I could have done back then. So, you know, um, it, it kind of works both ways. Yeah, I, I bet so. Yeah, Battles and you're right, has spawned quite a few different games and sequels. And uh, you weren't involved in any of those. Is that true? Or did you ever give any consultancy? Or really involved in any of them, but the, the, the Gensat Rebellion, um, great guy, Steve Bristow, the guy I talked to there, is, I, I hope to actually meet one day uh, yeah. when we travel across the pond again. Um, he uh, he decided that you know I'm going to tip my hat to the original Battle Zone and yeah. I'm include in the storyline that the reason you're out here fighting in this futuristic tank and and that's Battle Zone VR I'm referring to specifically um, 
uh, is because you're fighting against an evil corporation. Let's call it the Rockberg Corporation. <laughs> That's brilliant. And so he did that, and I had just seen that, you know, you know, because I, I see all this stuff from now and then. And I went when VR was announced. I went to their website and I saw, you know, Evil Rockberg Corporation, and I tweeted something out to the effect of, you know, uh, this is crazy. How did I become evil in all of this? <laughs> But I guess I should worry. My son says it helps my evil street cred. So yeah. <laughs> evil, evil genius street cred. So I had tweeted this out, and then Steve must have seen that and contacted me because, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, we we thought this would be it. I I would laugh back. I said it was it was <laughs> lighthearted humor, and they said, can we use your name? I said, oh sure, but you need to send me a T-shirt and a copy of the game. And of course, you know, as soon as the game came out, that all came forward. They were they were very upfront, and I signed something for me. Hey, you can use my name, you know. <laughs> I've, I've played it. It's a very good game, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sorry. It's very good, isn't it? I played I played Battles on oh, VR. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They did a they did a really good. And it's a really logical use of VR to be in a vehicle. I yeah. mean, yeah. you know, you don't have to get up and walk around and run into things and. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so good. I've got to talk about your time at 3DO because I find that fascinating. The console, the whole company, Chip Hawkins, what what, a, what an amazing man. What? Why did you join 3DO? Did you did you know Trip or how did you get the opportunity? Um, so I was at Apple at that time. And yeah, yeah. Apple went through this huge reorganization. Um, I'd been there for a couple of years. And the group that I was with was dissolved. And so, you know, they were laying off a lot of people. It was not just a reorganization. It was reorganization and a reduction in force, now a RIF, as we call it. And um, the people who were getting RIFed um, were, you know, given these wonderful severance packages because Apple was always good to their employees. So they'd get like six months and, you know, recommendations and, you know, please go find another job, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, they didn't riff me. Uh, it would have been wonderful. <laughs> they, said, they said, no, we want you to stay with the company here. We're going to move you to this group. And they moved me to a group doing, um, now this was, you know, before, you know, ubiquitous internet service providers. This was back when you had dial-up modems. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, or you had reg you know, newer, newfangled modems that, you know, you just connected in line. Um, and so they, they reorged me to a group doing modem technology. And this was, I did graphics, man. I did, yeah. you know, gameplay. I did, I did, I didn't know the first thing about, well, I didn't know the second thing about modems and I didn't want to. <laughs> yeah. And so that got me looking around for another job and 3DO had some openings. So I, uh, you know, I applied. And, and did, uh, you, yeah. Yeah. did you enjoy the 3DO? What was it like working there? Um, well, the first thing you know is that 3DO, every employee, whether they were, you know, um, a, a person who was, you know, uh, involved with, uh, you know, changing out the uh, the toner cartridges and the printers or whatever, or they were, you know, uh, a director of a department, every employee had to interview with Trip at one point or another. Right, to, yeah. You know, so sometimes they were group interviews and stuff like that. So I got to meet Trip and all this, and and basically they they brought me in to work as a liaison between um, 
the uh, developers, the game developers community, and um, and the hardware group, you know, the the internal, uh, you know, hardware and software group supporting the developers. And then we had, he developed a studio inside to do internal titles. It wasn't originally uh-huh. going to be uh, driven by internal titles that much, but they wanted to increase the content uh, coming out. And so I was in this position. So the first thing I was doing was doing some demos of how you could do like 3D on the original 3DO and, and stuff like that. And um, and I was just getting going with that, and they decided they needed a software director for the internal games group. So right. quickly, I got shifted into that role. And then they reorg, you know, after a year or two, they reorg the, the game group so that it was in more, more uh, uh, I guess you would call it horizontally oriented, so that there were individual teams, and I was a director of a team uh, within the game group. So, um Ooh. So that's that's how that whole thing went down. Uh, and one of the games you worked on was Killing Time. Is that right, Ed? Actually, that's not right. Um, oh, Moby games. Moby Games has some information. There's some information that's not quite right, and a lot of information that's just missing. There's a ton of yeah, policies that are not listed on there, um, and we could talk about those for ages, but. Um, John Height was responsible for Killing Time. He was the director of that group. I was in another group, and you know they had just the, their programmers had just come from reporting to me, and so I had some minor involvement with Killing right. Time, but not really with the game. And I, if I got my name in the credits in that, and I honestly don't remember whether I did or not, that was just John Height being a gentleman, right. <laughs> which he is. He's. He's another really wonderful guy that you know this industry has, has allowed me to work with and know uh, in the time. That's probably the best part about working in this industry. It's all the wonderful people I've, I've had a chance to work with. What what games did you work on then at 3D? Was there any big well, the first game I did was you know Trip Come and Go. We have to have an edutainment title, right? And I, we've got other teams. And I said, you need to do this for me. And you know, he gave me the old pitch. So I did a game called Station Invasion, which did a lot of it. Um, it mixed uh, a cast of young kids uh, who had taken over a TV studio on their own and they had different shows. And you would use that as the mechanism to do um, different kinds of learning games. Right. Um, yeah. So. There was a large video production, you know, we hired a video director and, you know, giant uh, green screen room and doing all this stuff. And then I had my own programming team and art team. And um, so, again, crazy deadline. Um, There are funny stories involved with that whole thing. But, you know, it's like all these. Uh, Every game you do has its own set of stories. Believe me. I bet it does. I bet it does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was the first game I, I did for for 3DO, and then the um, M2 project came about, which was uh, 3DO's next generation game that they had uh, partnered with uh, Panasonic or Matsushita to manufacture. Yeah. Um, so I got to get the lead title on that at least. It was a racing game, which was something much more up my alley yeah, to do. Yeah driving game you know? of course yeah, yeah what was the driving what was it called i'm sorry it was called uh 
she, well, originally it was going to be called IMSA Racing because we modeled the uh, IMSA race cars and the tracks that they raced on. Um, but it, it was eventually because of, of licensing reasons uh, not being worked out. It was, I think, called World Championship Racing. You can find videos of, of some of the gameplay. Um, but for its time, uh, the the graphic quality was was really outstanding. There was no pop-up of things in the elements as you drove. Everything mm-hmm. was on screen all the time. We were casting uh, real shadows. If you went under a bridge, it was pixel accurate shadows rendered onto the cars as they went under the bridge. Stuff like that, you know, uh, specular reflections from the cars, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Nice. Well, I mean, the 3DO is a great console, very powerful, but it never really, I mean, PlayStation destroyed it. You might agree or disagree, but... Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, I... Why, got their start with 3DO. Yeah. So, it, yeah. yes, I agree with you. It 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 failed badly in the, the war between the, the Nintendo 64 and the PlayStation, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was a loser in that battle. <laughs> and the Jaguar 64. <laughs> and the Jaguar, yeah. Jaguar. I had my, buddies, uh, my buddy Rob Zadebel worked over on that for for a while. I'm a, yeah, I've, I've got a Jaguar. Jaguar. I'm a big fan, actually. But, yeah, that must have been an interesting battle. But, unfortunately, you know, for Freedio, at least, I didn't quite win that battle. And did you? was that the reason why you had to – did you leave the company because of because of just the Freedio collapsing or um, – the um, racing game was a labor of love. I actually got to work with Mark Cerny on that. He did the actual oh. kernel of the game. Uh, it wasn't a full game engine, but he did the kernel of the 3D engine, um, which was a brilliant feat of programming in and of itself. Um, and the game was truly a labor of love. I mean, we poured a lot of stuff into this. And then when the uh, platform flopped, yeah. I just said, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of done with this. Um, and uh, th- at that point, I went off and I worked uh, for uh, Rick Moncrief, of all people, the guy who championed the Bradley trainer at Atari. Um, <laughs> and the guys I had hired, uh, and I knew from Atari, who did race driving and hard driving, wow. they were doing um, a location-based entertainment project uh, which eventually got called Silicon Motor Speedway. Um, but it was, they'd go into like shopping malls and different locations and put anywhere from like uh, eight to, um, I think the biggest one had like either 12 or 14 of these seven A size NASCARs sitting in front of three projecting screen monitors with a rear view monitor and an information monitor in the cockpit. They were motion platforms with force feedback steering, yeah. and you race upon accurately modeled NASCAR tracks with real physics engines. There were like, uh, each module had like four uh, Pentium processors, which was state of the art at the time, um, driving uh, this, and you'd compete with the other players, other- So cool. And it was a very <laughs> thing. So I went and worked on that and, and basically worked on the rendering engine uh, with uh, uh, Terry Farnham, um, and uh, you know it was with Max Vansky and Stephanie Mott uh, and Rick Moncrief uh, and all those guys. Um, so I did that for a few years. Nice, yeah. good on you. Incredible career. Um, just a few sort of you know short fire questions and a few uh, social media questions. 
if that's all right, Ed. Um, did you, I mean, I, I know you kind of mentioned earlier, but did you ever start work on any unreleased games uh, in your career? And if so, which one would you, did, did you feel would have been the most successful if you completed it? Well, that would be the last game I worked on for Innervative Leisure. So <laughs> and it, was never released. it was a game called Draconis Rex. Um, it was it was out on test for a while in Australia only. Um, I Yeah, I have very fond memories of that. Also, the 3DO racing, the championship racing game that never went out. Yeah, well, um, well, yeah why didn't that come out on the 3DO? Just, just well, the because time. the platform failed. Yeah, of course, yeah. It was written for the M2 uh, platform, and the platform never made it to market. So that game didn't come out. And you know, those things kill you. Um, sometimes they don't if it's really a crappy game. You know, hey, that wasn't a good idea. Okay. Because I had some of those too. Um, but um, there, you know, was a game. There were some games that I worked on. Uh, I was working on two games when I left Atari um, the, um, the second time. Was the second time? Uh, no, the first time I left, it was. There were two games I was working on, and one was eventually went on to become Star Wars. Um, <laughs> I had been working on a game before they got the license, and it was called Warp Speed, and it was going to be um, a space fighting game. And I said we have to use the Bradley Trainer c- controller because this makes sense for a video game. So. We used a slightly modified version of the controller that went into the Bradley trainer. And we had two stations that could, you know, pilot a spaceship around the space. Well, we quickly learned that it was very easy to get disoriented, not have any idea when you're where you're facing in true 3D space. Um, even with kind of a radar telling you, yeah. it was uh, so uh, the game morphed into Star Wars, which made way more sense. So that was a game that that you know never I never finished, but a game another game that I had started on I wanted to do a game based on Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern. And never heard of it. It was a series of books, um, and so uh, we got going on that game. And uh, there's a very there's some stories involved with all of that. I came up with um, uh, a concept for moving a snake around on a on a bitmap display where you could move a bunch of snake, little snakes real quickly if they were just one pixel by just erasing the, the not redrawing the whole screen, but erasing uh, the tail and moving the head forward. And so you would just have just yeah. a real quick algorithm to do this. And then I did all kind of modifications. And so that was going to be the thread which fell from the sky in the Dragon Riders Apparent thing, which the Dragon Riders used to blast out of the air with their fiery breath, because if the thread fell, all kinds of bad things happened. So that was what the game was based on. After I left, Peter Lipson finished a game called Fire Beast, which was based on that, because they never could agree with McCaffrey on the license. Um, And I took that same algorithm, and it became the basis for a game that Belly Sente did called um, Snake Pit, which was a takeoff on uh, you know Indiana Jones, uh, the original Indiana Jones movie, and snakes. How he yeah. hated snakes. Yeah. So, um, and then the nice part about that was when my son uh, first got into college, he was uh, a computer engineering student. His first course, they were uh, 
um, he, they were teaching them how to write Java. And um, the example that the, that the, uh, the, the homework that the, the, the instructor gave, I was with my son in his class on parent-teacher day, and, the and I wanted to sit in on this class, and he gives them the problem of moving a snake around on the screen. And I just cracked. <laughs> I had to leave the classroom. I was laughing so hard. Um, and, you know, Gabe knew what was going on. My son, Gabe, knew what was going on. Because I mean, really, you could have run that, that yeah, class. Could you? That, that he picked that example out of all the things to give them as, a, as a, an exercise in the class was great. So, yeah. Um, just really back to your race again. Could that not have been released on the PlayStation? Could you not have used a lot of the graphics and the the? No, the PlayStation wasn't capable of rendering that. I mean, it could have been released. Um, I don't know that the PlayStation had the power to do both the physics engine because we actually used real physics in that game. Um, and it certainly couldn't do graphics at the level that the that the uh, M2 could. Um, it was a great machine, but it was never meant to be a 3D monster, and the, the M2 yeah. was. The M2 was it was fully produced in this hardware. It was it was available, yes. but it, it just wasn't released. It just yeah. Correct. There are prototypes out there. I, you know, you can probably find more information about that on the net. Um, one of the guys on the team. Uh, Alex Werner, I think, uh, had one of the prototypes after the whole thing went away uh, for at least for a number of years. I do not, I have not been in touch with Alex. I don't know if he still has it or what. Really, really brilliant guy, Alex. It's a shame, really, isn't it? Because I, I guess we'll never know, but maybe that could have been the console that did rival the PlayStation brand and X. Who would we'll never know, I guess, now. But. Yeah, and, and like I said, there's there's fun stories about all these games. And I have one about that that was kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, like I, you know, any any one of us who were in the industry long enough can regale you with lots of stories about different things. Trust me. <laughs> oh, and you, what a legend! Um, what are you currently working in the video game industry? Are you, what projects are you currently working on right now? Are you retired or? I am retired. Yeah. Um, one of the smartest things I did in my life was marry my wife. Um, who uh, happened to be a financial advisor, which is actually how we met. And um, so, you know, while I was slaving away on video games all these years, uh, she was uh, working to make other people, you know, wealthy and for us as well. So uh, I was able to retire a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it's nice not to have a deadline hanging over my head anymore. Yeah, so now I, now I uh, I do photography, uh, you know, I raise a dog, I... I uh, I play golf when I can. Well, I don't know if, if people watching would call it golf. But I go out on the golf course and I swing clubs <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, no, good. Like you enjoy life. I think you deserve it after, you know, your, your long career, definitely. Um, do you still play games, though? Do you, have you got any favorite video games you play today? I do. Um, I, you know, I don't play the Twitch games anymore. I, I can't. I'm... I'm a septuagenarian now, so <laughs> the hands don't work quite as fast as they used to, and uh, and it, it just gets frustrating for me. Um, I I kind of like more um, enjoy the, like turn the good turn-based RPGs, and the game I've had most fun recently with is this uh, uh, RPG with um, shall we just say more fanciful rather than photorealistic graphics called For the King. If you must know, 
I've heard of this. Yeah. Part of the reason I like it is it's across almost every platform you can shake a stick at, and they can all. It has a three-player cooperation mode, and so um, I play with my son and his wife, who are both big-time gamers. Nice. Although more board gaming and you know uh, role-playing games than than video games, but big-time video game players too. And so we've been playing, you know, we've been playing it once a week. We'd get online and play for like three hours at a stretch. Oh, nice. And it was, you know, and we're using Discord. And, and so we just have a fun time doing that. And, and since they live across the country from me and I rarely get to see them, it was just a wonderful way to connect for a few hours with them uh, every week. So Good on you. For the king, yeah, definitely have to yeah, check it out. Before I say goodbye, Ed, and I've got a few last you know, quick fire social media questions from Mike M- Mika, Mike Mika, um, yeah. another legend in the industry. Like, I'm not sure whether it's Mike or Mika. Yeah, yeah I've definitely said one of it wrong at least. Yeah, asked, sure. yeah um, how, question two. How, I've already asked you about the Polybius question. Um, how long does it take to reach the outer edge of the volcano battle zone? <laughs> very, 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 very long time because it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's just a drawing out there. The playfield itself wraps within its own, I think it's 1024 by 1024 unit um, uh, size. I, it, that's already, you know, over 40 years yeah. ago. Um, so I can't tell you if it was... You know, 1024, 2048, but it wraps within its own uh, coordinate system in both uh, uh, the uh, X and the Z direction, if you will. Oh, fair enough. I don't you know your 3D graphics. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what this question means. I'm going to ask anyway. What What does the keyhole do on the back of the hut in hard driving? Does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. There was a place you could drive to. There was a test track. That was if you got off the regular track in, in um, I think it was race driving. Um, there was a skid pad you could go, you know, test and see, you know, how fast you could go before you lost traction fully. Um, that's because they were trying to do as real physics uh, model as they could. And my answer is I don't know. I knew it was there. And I, it was one of those things I never, ever asked uh, Max and Steph about, and they would be the ones who would know. Right, okay, fair enough. Um, CDI Arcade asks, kind of asked this already, but it says, I wonder if Debs for games like Battlezone were thinking about the, uh, the Atari 2600's limits, if there was going to be a port, or if they were more free to experiment because of arcade hardware could change with every game. Well, I would, uh, let me answer it this way. If we had seen one penny from the revenues of games that were ported to the 2600, we would have been thinking about it for sure. Good answer. Uh, as, it was, <laughs> as it was, I said, as I said, we were working on these things because we loved the game. Mm-hmm. We loved the concept. We were thinking about doing just the best damn game we could. Not a thought went into, are they going to have a hard time porting this? No, not a single thought. Yeah, no, fair enough, and I, I don't blame you, really, if I'm being honest. <laughs> uh, another question from Grail. From, they ask, at what point during its development did the arcade cabinet get the iconic periscope? What did you wish you could have added to the game? All right, this is going to upset a lot of people, but um, I hated that periscope. Wow. Um, and I'll explain why. Um, but um, 
to answer the question, it was with the first concepts that were drawn up for the cabinet. Um, the project leader, Morgan Hoff, wanted to have this periscope. Yeah. And in the original version, um, later versions had a window cut out uh, alongside so people could see in. Um, yeah. I hated it because the arcade experience back in those days was you'd walk around the arcade thinking, oh, I'm going to try this game or, oh, I'm going to try this game. And because um, you were watching other people play um, with that periscope, yeah. you could not watch another person play. Certainly the original version that didn't have the windows cut out. Um, and I thought this could only hurt the ability of the game, game to gain popularity. And so I said, no, this is a bad idea. And I fought with Morgan about it, but he was the project leader. It was only my second project at Atari. So um, it went out with the Periscope. <laughs> and uh, later versions did away with it. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's a good point, though. I suppose it, it catches your eye when you see it, but you're right, you don't actually see and the gameplay. It's better for the player. It brings you in, and I agree with all of that. But what we were always trying to do was increase the coin drop, as we called it. Sure, you yeah. Know, get more people playing the game. We wanted people to be like... You'd walk into a popular uh, arcade, and a popular game would have a line of quarters on the console you know, owned by the people standing in line to play it next. Well, this would be impossible with the the periscope. Yeah. And so it just wasn't <laughs> well, it's also impossible with Battlezone because people were always pulling back on the cabinet oh. and all the quarters would fall off. But you know <laughs> yeah, I didn't of that. <laughs> oh man. And you, what a gentleman. I've got one final question. It's a bit of a silly question we ask all our guests, but I've really enjoyed today's interview. Um if you could share a few drinks with any video game character, who would you choose and why? Video game character. Yeah. Well, maybe the bartender from Tapper. I don't even know if you remember the Tapper game. I, I know it's, yeah, I know the game. The beer's flying. For a beer. Um, and that would be the only reason. Um, I don't know. Let's see. Nowadays, you got it. I don't even know. Um, uh, and it's not even that recent. How about Laura Croft? <laughs> no, she's a popular choice. Um, she probably gets about caught with the votes, actually, when I ask people. <laughs> yeah, no, good. She'll have some interesting stories to tell, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Ed, what a gentleman. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, thank you. Good luck for the rest of your you know, career and your life. And thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. You can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Arcade Attack UK. Check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots more retro gaming goodness and to delve into our archives. Our podcasts are also available on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review and a rating. We'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support Arcade Attack, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash arcadeattack, which will give you access to exclusive podcasts, interviews, and other bonus content. So, until next time, take care, and we'll speak to you soon.